If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to the Danny Klinkscale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Insightful and witty commentary, probing interviews, and detours from the beaten path. Welcome to Kansas City Profiles, presented by Easton Roofing, and a special catch-up with Bob Walkenhorst, iconic Kansas City musician, past of the Rainmakers, and still occasionally, and of course does all kinds of amazing projects, and you can find a lot of what he does at patreon.com slash bobwalkenhorst, and he'll catch us up to date with uh, all of that, and last time I saw Bob, just was saying to him, I don't know if he saw me, but was the New Year's Eve Rainmakers concert at the end of 2019, headed into 2020. And of course, we've all had to navigate many, many things, but you certainly have used your time productively, my man. It's great to talk to you again. Well, you too, Danny. You know the old saying that if you're if you're self-employed, your boss is an a-hole. Well, <laughs> that that kind of kind of served me well during the the pandemic and the shutdown, in that almost everything I do is uh, self-contained from my from my music to my writing to my painting, you know, no one's going to make me do it but me. So I I kind of took the pandemic time and got busy on some projects that I had been on my bucket list that I'd always wanted to do. And it was kind of one of those, you know, it's now or never. This is this is the perfect, uh, absolutely imperfect opportunity to uh, to do some things that you've been putting off. Just a, a real quick aside for... Uh, the music community as well. Uh, you know, you, everybody tried to maneuver in their own way, and you certainly seem to have done it quite successfully, at least uh, from my purview. Uh, but it's been hard for musicians uh, trying to just navigate uh, streaming, and, and also not just musicians, but people who are involved in the music business in areas like doing sound and things like that. It's been rough. Yeah, particularly, uh, yeah, like you said, for the clubs and the venues uh, who, yeah, the shutdown, I, I don't know. I remember I heard the percentage, but there are so many clubs and venues that just won't come back, and that's mm-hmm. really tragic. Uh, I think that I think most of the Kansas City ones have survived. The ones that were kind of the showcase clubs around Kansas City have survived by by just being smart and figuring out ways around it and uh, and pushing on through. But yeah, it's been tough. It's been particularly tough for young musicians. I mean, a guy who's been doing it as long as I have been doing it, I kind of created some other avenues for my music to get out for income to come in. And, uh, but like my daughter, Una, who's, uh, who had just finished and released her first EP or her new EP in 2019 and was putting plans together to go out and see the country and, and play shows and all that stops. And she's one of thousands and thousands. That same thing happened to, whose career was just starting and they, they had to, uh, had, they didn't have other plans to turn to. So I really feel for the young musicians. Uh, I also feel for the clubs and the sound engineers and all that too, but I think they're going to be okay in Kansas city coming back. 
You actually have done a couple of albums uh, since the pandemic uh, in uh, 2020 and 2021, and uh, tell us a little bit about those projects. Uh, well, I think there's only one. But <laughs> uh, I put out a solo album in 2003. That was my first solo album. And just uh, one month ago, I put out my second solo album. So in eight, 18 years between solo albums, I think that, that's a good... <laughs> everyone should put 18 years between their solo albums. That way you're kind of guaranteed it'll be a pretty good record. Uh, but yeah, I spent 2020... I, I You mentioned Patreon at the beginning of our conversation. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And it is a a service for musicians where their listeners, their fans can subscribe to that artist. And the, the monthly subscription becomes a very important part of the support income for an artist to keep doing what you hope people uh, want you to do. So I, I send out a new song every single month to my patrons and it's available nowhere else except to my patrons. But after a year of that, I did that all through 2020 my patrons encouraged me to send it out to the rest of the world. So that's those are the songs that I released June 1st, 2021. My new album is A Thousand Words. And uh, it's it's available in a physical CD. It's also available on all the streaming things. And uh, you can find it most everywhere that you find things online. Also, you can find it at my website, and I'll send you an autographed copy. <laughs> that sounds absolutely great, and I uh, follow you on Facebook and uh, get to keep up with you that way. I have a Patreon site as well, and it certainly does uh, help in many ways, but uh, most of my content uh, is free, but there are certain exclusive things that are on Patreon, and you do a lot of different things there, but uh, you know, at, at different levels, paintings, and uh, we'll get into your sh- book of short stories here in a minute, but uh, there are various different ways people can engage with you. Yeah, you know, I try to make it to where if you just want to hear my new song each month, well, that's something it'll, it'll cost you less than a beer. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to support me at a slightly higher level than that, well, you can get an art print after after a year, or you can get an original painting. Or if you really want to go whole hog here, I will come to your house and play a, an acoustic concert for you at a certain price level. So yeah, I give people a bunch of those options and, and yeah, a lot of people have gone for different ways. It's been a pleasant surprise to see how supportive my longtime fans have been. And, uh, I, I, I hate using the word fans. I think of them as friends, you know, they have certainly kept, kept my life, uh, comfortable and, and productive and, and thank you, my friends. I, I will, I will keep going as long as you want me to. You mentioned uh, Bucket List, and uh, you also, in 2020 uh, and into this year, published uh, a book of short stories, and it's a very interesting concept, short stories that sort of have an overarching th- theme. Well, they're, they're different short stories, but they're all very much interconnected. Yeah, that, was, that really was a bucket list thing. I've always had a huge admiration and, and sense of mystery about people who can write books. I mean... The writing I've spent my life doing, it, it takes about a half an hour to an hour to do to finish a song. You know, uh, you can get it done in a, in a good half hour, and when it's all finished, it's three and a half minutes long. How do you write something that's two or three hundred pages or more? And how do you st- how do you stick that out? How do you maintain the the focus to get that done? I just never understood. And I've met quite a few writers uh, over the years who have had various levels of success and. 
I just, it just has always amazed me. And, and so when the pandemic set in and it was clear that I was not going to be going out playing music anywhere, I thought, okay, give it a try. And writing long, long form, even though it is short stories, it still goes on for several hundred pages, uh, is a whole different thing than music. Music, you're looking for that spark and you fan the spark and it bursts into a little flame and you roast your marshmallow and it's done, you know, but, but the long form writing, uh, it, it's a mysterious journey. And so I wrote these stories. I grew up in a small town about an hour east of Kansas city, Norburn, Missouri, which was about a thousand people when I was growing up, it's down to about 700 now. And it was a great place to grow up. Really interesting characters, really strange, strange, strange low frequencies there, you know, all these things going on under the surface. And, uh, while my childhood was quite happy, I, I, as I grew up, I realized that there, in all small towns, there's a lot of different levels of existence. And so I tried to write about some of those complexities of small town life. And back in 1965, we actually had an event in Norburn called Whirly Bird Day, where a helicopter, and at, at that time, nobody in my town had even seen a helicopter before. A helicopter comes to town and gives gives rides, but the big event is they drop hundreds of ping pong balls over the center of town. All these ping pong balls have a number on them, and you can then redeem your number for prizes or groceries or various things or free rides in the helicopter. So that that's the connecting thing between the stories. It's all these different people and what happens to them on that day. It was great fun to write. It, it was like getting in a time machine and going back to my childhood. I, I the process of trying trying to write about something that actually happened, but you're you're going into fiction with it. You're going into imagination conjured up so many memories for me that it really was like getting in the time machine every day that I worked on it. Um, you know, I only hear the good reviews, so <laughs> you never know, but I, I worked real hard on the book and I think it's, I think it's entertaining. It's not funny. Now there's a few funny moments, but it's, it's an unusual little group of stories without being sensational at any, in, at any level. It's not uh it's not a whodunit. It's just these little observations of, small lives and all the huge things that go inside go on inside of small lives. Now that we are at least starting to get out of the pandemic, what do you see uh, over the horizon as far as uh, getting back out and playing and doing things like that? Well, my return to live performance is August 28th, I think. Let me make sure I get the date right. Um, The Rainmakers are performing a free concert at Johnson County Community College on the 27th, Friday, the 27th of August. And I am not performing until then. I had to make a decision several months ago uh, about when I was going to start putting dates on the calendar. And of course, several months ago, we didn't quite know how this was going to, how this was going to go. And even right now, we don't really, with the Delta variant out, we don't really know how this is going to go. I hope, hope everything's clear at the end of August. But yeah, the Rainmakers outside of Johnson County Community College, free concert. And uh, then I, get back out and start doing some solo gigs uh, in September and October. So yeah, it's still still a couple months away for me. Sounds very cool. And coming up next, uh, you heard Bob reference his uh, childhood in Norburn, Missouri, and we will talk about that and many, many other things in our conversation from a couple of years ago that we revisit here. It's great catching up with you, Bob, and I'll talk to you again soon.
You too, Danny. Thanks so much. Bob Wackenhorst and much more straight ahead on Kansas City Profiles, presented by Easton Roofing. More of Danny's Reasonably Irreverent podcast after this. I'm here with Joe Spiker, owner of Easton Roofing, and boy, we had to negotiate a million things in 2020, but Easton Roofing navigated them all. As 2021 rolls out, what should we expect this coming storm season? Well, Danny, it'll be the same thing as it is every year. (laughs) You know, the storms come, and you've got the guys out knocking on doors, offering quote-unquote free inspections. Be wary as a homeowner. If somebody's knocking on your door, they probably need the work. And if they need the work that bad, they may be willing to do something untoward to get it. So if somebody knocks on your door, says they want to give you a free inspection, just tell them have a great day and give us a call. We'll come out for free and give you a good, honest opinion as to whether or not you need to do anything at all with your roof. And what's the best way to get in touch with Easton Roofing? You can always find us online at eastonroofing.com or give us a call at 913-257-5426. Easton Roofing. Integrity matters. Time to spend a few minutes with my good friend Jeff Dillon from Dillon's Heating and Cooling. And Jeff, what differentiates your company from others in the industry? Plain and simple, we're honest. We have integrity and we're going to do things right the first time. There's way too many companies out there that lie, cheat, hide things from the homeowner or customer, and we're not about that. It's kind of funny sometimes. I actually am so honest with some people, it kind of surprises them, but sometimes it's good for business, sometimes it's bad for business, but ultimately it's the kind of business that I want to run is an honest one. And that family way of treating things is part of your slogan, and it's also part of one of your great features that you offer to customers. Our slogan is like family. Our most popular maintenance plan is called the family plan. It's very similar to a lot of ones out there. The little tweak that we do to ours, 1% off for every two years, they have a continued maintenance plan with us. If they have a maintenance plan for 10 years and we give them 5% off, no questions asked. You can find out more about Dylan's Heating and Cooling and all their great range of services at dylansheatingandcooling.com. That's Dylan's with an S. The phone number, 913-214-1343. Cinematic Visions has been an affordable solution for professional media production in Kansas City since 2003, offering award-winning video production and creation, as well as a wide array of digital and social media management services. From planning, scripting, filming, editing, and post-production, to delivering your product to a watching world, Cinematic Visions will provide professional and affordable services for you and your business with the necessary return on investment to make it all worthwhile. Cinematic Vision's goal is to unlock the power of storytelling through video and a strong online presence for your company. Beyond the numbers, they want to inspire and evoke your clients to feel and act. Let my friends at Cinematic Visions embed your brand where it belongs, in your customers' minds. You can find them online at cinematicvisions.com or with a quick phone call at 816-600-6300. Let's have a brief conversation with David Schmidt from Pro Millennial. David, what differentiates you from other financial organizations? I would say the passion we have for seeing our clients succeed is probably paramount to what we do here. There's no joy greater than watching a client accumulate wealth. I had a client that I've had for many years was able to buy his dream warehouse. Nothing too extravagant, but we had a savings plan in place and was able to see him fulfill his dreams. And what else motivates you in this industry? Well, lately, it's been finding out inconsistencies in the marketplace, ferreting out some more than questionable ideas out there that what we're seeing with Bitcoin and a few of these other cryptocurrencies right now. I'm in the opinion where if it's untraceable, it really needs to be regulated in a big way right now. 
To get more information and advice from David, visit ProMillennial.com or call 816-221-7775. That's 816-221-7775. If you'd like to join these and other great sponsors and market your business to a growing and engaged audience, contact us at Danny at DannyClinkScale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Bob, it's a pleasure to sit down with you. I've watched you from afar, including very recently in clubs and places like that. And I think our paths have crossed on a couple of occasions. But uh, getting to know you in this format on Danny Klinkscale's Reasonably Irreverent Podcast and our Kansas City Profiles is, uh, I think, going to be a pleasure. And I always enjoy this and dive into areas where I never, unless I sat around having some beers with that person, would find out. Norborn morning for that. I, can, <laughs> I got one in the fridge. <laughs> it's all right. Norborn, Missouri, population around a thousand. What was it like being five, six-year-old Bob Walkenhorst in Norborn? You know, I tell people that I grew up in Mayberry, but I had both parents. Uh, it was, you know, it was small town America at its, at least as near as I know, at its best. You know, when when all those little towns that were an hour or so away from a, a metropolitan area like Kansas city all had their own self-sufficient economies, uh, lumber yards, car dealerships, grocery stores, dentists, doctors, every town had, had their own. Uh, we would only come to Kansas city maybe once or twice a year, even though we were only an hour away just that much, that long ago, which was, which the 1950s, uh, into the 60s and the 70s, those towns really all just were self-sufficient. And so I feel like I grew up in a really good time to be in a small town in that there was a, a real diversity of incomes, uh, education, r- racial diversity in the little town I grew up in. So I feel like that I was there kind of at the prime of small town America. And you described it sort of a Mayberry-like existence. Was it, uh, you know, uh, Ozzie and Harriet, Leave it to Beaver type of parental situation or how would you describe yeah, it? Yeah, very much. My, my parents were, uh, I think they were a real good example of a, a good partnership. Uh, my my dad, my dad and I are a lot alike, even though he's been gone a long time, I can still feel him around me all the time. He loved music, loved working with his hands, um, treated my mom really well, treated me and my brothers really well, was respected in the community, knew, knew that he, he felt that sense of duty to his community that he needed to to be a part of it and contribute to it. And, and I think that I've, I learned that at an early age. So yeah, it really was a, a, a very safe and secure and encouraging type of home life that I had. Brothers and sing kid. That's what you know how to do. Get out there and sing. <laughs> Brothers, uh, older, younger, went one to, of each, one, one older, of one younger, and they both live out in Oak Grove. Okay. And how, where, where do you stack up age-wise with them? Uh, uh, my little brother's three years younger. My older brother's two years older. Oh, okay. And kind of perfect. Uh, yeah, I am, you know, the middle kid, and, and we all loved music. I just loved it more. Right. Yeah. Where did you, uh, where did that come from? You mentioned your dad loved music. Uh, when did you, you know, standard issue, start playing piano lessons, or what? how did, how did it start for you? Well, um, uh, <laughs> my first public performance is when I was three years old. Wow! I, I had a ukulele and a coonskin cap, and I stood in front of the Farm Bureau banquet in Norburn, Missouri, and sang 16 Tons by Tennessee Ernie <laughs> Ford, which to this day I still sing. So. Right. I mean, I'm I know you do, a hard, song you do a hard rock version of that. I know that. Uh, we have something in common. I got my first radio paycheck when I was five years old. So, oh, wow. So <laughs> there we go. Uh, you got a paycheck. That guy's got a piece of pie. <laughs> 
that sounds like Norborn. Yeah, uh, when did you sort of get the feeling that this might be, I mean, you were performed at three. When did you, did you just have an idea as you were going through elementary school and into your more formative years that this was something that was going to be real? It, it was always the thing that I did, you know, I, because I started singing in front of people, even though it was just in the small confines of my little town and church and school and, and farm bureau banquets and things like that. The idea of getting up in front of people was real comfortable for me. And it was my identity. That was the thing I did. I was the kid who sang. So it wasn't like there was a decision somewhere along the line that I, I think I'll do music for a living. I just have never done anything else. And I've never loved anything else, uh, any kind of occupation as much as I've loved that. And it's just been a part of me for such a long time. I can't really separate it from myself. I've learned to separate it from myself. I think that that's something that as you have a longer life as a musician, you learn, okay, that's me, the musician, and this is me, the the partner and and the father and the member of the community. That there really is a dividing line that you have to learn. I did have a, a musician friend of mine say, "You got to know who you are when you don't have a guitar in your hands." And I thought that's the best advice I've heard all day. What were you like as a as a student, and did you have other interests away from school, or was it just music? Um, Oh, just like making stuff, you know, that's, my dad was a carpenter and, and he was happy when he was building things or painting things or carving things. And I always liked either painting or drawing or making music. Uh, anything that was not a contact sport got me in, you know. <laughs> that sounds great. Uh, what was, uh, did you live in Norburn all through your yeah, uh, up till yeah. about age 22. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so what was, what was a high school existence like in in a school in a town like norburn that was small and you know everybody knew everybody what was what was high school like uh it, it was very supportive uh the the high school band you know maybe had 30 or 50 kids in it but our my band director was like you guys can play complicated things we just have to practice and so i i my school situation was very much um believing that you can do these these really difficult things if you work hard at them there was not and there was only a few a few kids in my town that played rock and roll you know that was kind of like ooh, those are the those are the rock and roll guys and i was always quite fascinated by the older guys and there were there were only a few a little older than me who were playing in rock and roll bands and i thought how do how do i get to do that how do i take that first step to play down at the the VFW hall at the county seat. You know, I mean, it, right. sound, it all sounds very quaint now, but I mean, that really was my roadmap. It's like, okay, I have a little set of drums. Now, how do I get guys to play guitars with me? And and uh, I quite enjoyed the trip of figuring out which guy was uh, the guitar player, which guy was the bass player, and and having bands in high school and, and early college days, yeah. So did you play, you obviously eventually were a drummer, did you play drums in the high school band? I actually started as a drummer. I played drums before right. I played guitar right. and loved the drums, loved Ringo. You know, I'm from that Beatles generation, mm -hmm. uh, Ringo and Charlie Watts. And it's like, and even my parents watched the Lawrence Welk show. That was our Saturday night thing. We watched the Lawrence <laughs> Welk show and the guy that played the drums in the Lawrence Welk orchestra, I was always like, man, that's the coolest guy. Well, no one else in the band is cool, but that guy is cool. <laughs> that's amazing. And I should know his name. I'm forgetting it right now. Yeah, yeah, it's great right. drummer. I, I turn, I, we didn't do that, thank goodness. You turn it on and then turn it off. So, uh, and Mitch Miller, maybe, but... Uh, uh, 
How about uh, high school from a social standpoint? You know, the, those uh, small town high schools, and particularly in the the sixties and seventies when I was growing up there, it was it was sports, very sports oriented, but they didn't uh, neglect the arts programs you know there were there was a good art teacher and there was a good music teacher uh, our high school band was would win awards across the state and we would go on these little tours and and take our high school band to other little high schools and play uh so i had my role you know i was the guy that played drums i was the guy that sang i was the great guy that drew pictures so that was my identity in high school which was it was good to have an identity it's good to, to have uh, a social system that identifies who you are and lets you be that person. So when did you finally find your guitarist and your bass player and <laughs> and play at the VFW? Well, I found a guy that owned a guitar that couldn't play it <laughs> and I owned drums that he could play. So he took the he took my drums, I took his Rickenbacker and his Fender amp and so I my first band I was actually the guitarist and I had just, you know, started on guitar but I could play some amount of guitar. So I actually started in my first band I was the guitarist. And what was the name of that band, do you remember? That band was called Fantasia. Whoa. With a P-H. Wow, there you go. And strange little story. Very heavy. We, uh, we, you know, we were very serious about our music, quite influenced by King Crimson and Moody right. Blues and things like that. So we came up to Damon Studios in Kansas City, which was in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, and actually going back to the 40s, Damon Studios and the Damon record label was a big deal i mean if you do you know any of that history that's no i don't that you got to check that out it's a cool story there was a guy named vic damon right. who who bought uh high top Not vic, Damone, vic damon vic damon yeah <laughs> and his son george was the engineer right later on and vic recorded marilyn may and oh wow. and uh um, a lot of the other Kansas City jazz scene, and then you know, stayed in business and recorded Brewer and Shipley and all. And really, a lot of guys my age made their trek to Damon Studios, and it was I think it was at Fourteenth and Grand or somewhere there, and it was underground. So you went in this little door and you were down under, and, and they had the best equipment. They had Ampex recording and and Neumann mics and and a lathe cutter there. They cut your own records. So we came up and recorded uh, my little my little Norburn, Missouri band came up and recorded an album. And that album eventually became the the holy grail of German record collectors who collect <laughs> 1970s unreleased American psychedelia. Our band became, <laughs> became, it's like, how did that get to Germany? I don't know. But yeah, it's funny, those things, music, where it goes, you, know, you have no control where it goes, throw it out there. So when did Steve, Rob, and Rich come about, the Steve, precursors to? Uh, I was living in Branson from... Um, the seventies up until eighty one. I moved to Kansas City in, in eighty one, and I moved up here with the idea of. I mean, I was already just a quick back when you were in Branson. Did you just do your own thing? No, I worked at Silver Dollar City. Oh, okay, and worked uh, some of the nighttime shows there, and really learned show business. You know how to. You're going to do this every day, and you're going to do this for eight or 12 hours every day, how do you do that? You know, and how do you pr approach it professionally? How do you do a good job every time you walk out in front of a crowd? You know, how do you, so I, it was a great training ground. I, I met a lot of, of fantastic people during the seventies at Silver Dollar City. Uh, really people who had had experience in vaudeville and circuses and all kinds of stuff. So it, it was a, a real learning experience for me too, but I wanted to write so well i was writing songs mm -hmm. and i needed to be in a bigger city and not not quite so rural country right uh tourist 
entertainment type of city to uh, be able to pursue that. And I had ventured up to Springfield and heard Fool's Face, mm-hmm. which anybody from the, the 80s era of, of Kansas City music scene knows who that is. And they were this incredible five-piece rock band that was did amazing covers and, and had released three albums. And, you know, they were great guys and they had a look and they were energetic. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Mm. So I moved up to Kansas City in 81. So did you go into music right out of high school and not pursue college or did no you i went to college go? i went to central missouri state okay. of warrensburg for a couple of years and i was in i was in visual arts there okay drawing and painting and then graduated from northwest missouri at uh, at maryville but there you and go. i would still be in college if there was a way i loved going to college <laughs> i stretched it out i think i went five years over seven i would just keep stretching it out no i'm not not quite ready to get out in the real world either. well i went four years over ten there, so you, go. there you go stretching it out <laughs> uh so you come to kansas city and I see this this fantastic music scene, both on the original level. I mean, those bands that I mentioned, uh, Fool's Face and The Secrets from Lawrence and uh, Kelly and the Kinetics from Lawrence and the Morels from, and the Clocks from Wichita, the Morels from Springfield. You know, there are all these bands that were, were making records. You know, they're making independent records. They were writing original music. They were, you know, we were kind of on the tail end of that pop punk thing. Right. Elvis Costello, Police. Right. wave of music so there's all this energy in this music and then there were these great local bands you know that were mostly cover bands some of them 100 percent cover bands but so you know there were these the westport scene i mean there were within a few blocks and it, it i know it's still to this it's still this way to some degree but there were probably six clubs within three blocks that all had live music six nights a week and if you could get a job at one of those clubs with your band you were playing five or six nights a week four hours a night wow and you were getting better and if and and it paid the rent you didn't have to get another job it's like wow i'm a professional musician right i'm playing i'm buying the groceries and i'm paying the rent and i'm playing every single night and i'm getting better at it so i I think I, i landed in town at a really good time i mean from monday through saturday the clubs were all full so did you, from that point forward, were you pretty much able to be a professional musician? Yeah. Or, or did, and you never had to have a quote-unquote real job? No, I've had a real job. <laughs> uh, I mean, besides music. Uh, the, I feel like I've been lucky in that the, the chapters of my musical life have lined up nicely with the chapters of my personal life in that I... I some of the members of my band have missed births. You know, they've been out of the country when a baby was right. born. Uh, when Michelle and I got together, it was kind of at one of the chapter breaks for the Rainmakers. So I was home all the time. My kids were little, and in fact, I was home solid for five years. I we we had enough money saved. It's like okay, let's have these babies and let's just stay here. And it was. The best money I ever spent staying home for five that, years. Wow, that is amazing. I but, mean, that doesn't sound that doesn't sound like a musician. Well, actually, I think there are a lot of musicians that, if you can, or, or if, some people's people's perception of a musician, maybe, maybe, or or at least the the kind of the the outlaw, adventurous side of music. But I think there's a lot of people. I mean, you can look at Paul McCartney, who's been right. a, a really good family man. Keith Richards said. I've done it all, and there's nothing as high as having kids. It, that that when you are really there for the experience, 
and say, yeah, that's where you start learning. Here's the part of me that's a musician, and here's the part of me that's a human being. Right? They're not necessarily always the same thing. And, and in fact, one, the, the musical side can certainly compromise the human being side. So I was lucky in that the band had kind of reached a point where we have to stop for a while. We don't know how long. And that lined up with, with Michelle and I being together and, and children that I could stay home for, which I am incredibly grateful that I got that experience. I would not, there was nothing that would be worth missing that. Well, let's get into the uh, rise and not fall, that's not fair. <laughs> the, the rise the and plateau. <laughs> right, <laughs> after our first time out, uh, we are talking with Bob Walkenhorst uh, from the Rainmakers and just Bob being Bob Walkenhorst, which has been so cool for the Kansas City music scene for so long, and the Scandinavian music scene mm-hmm. and all these music scenes all over the place. We'll continue right after this. More of Danny's Reasonably Irreverent podcast after this. Most of us have experienced auto accidents, and it's no fun. And even less fun is trying to work on the insurance aspects afterwards and getting full value after an auto accident. I'm here with David Cowan from RecExpert.com. And David, you have an unusual and important niche for people after an auto accident. We have a passion to teach car wreck clients what they deserve. Getting your car repaired only fixes the damage and the paint. Getting paid for your car's loss in value is called diminished value. Chances are you've never heard of this before because most people aren't looking out for you. We help people collect thousands to tens of thousands of dollars for their car's loss in value after the wreck. And if somebody wants to come to you for that, what's the original assessment cost them? We offer a free review of any insurance claim to see how we can help. You can't beat that. Great expertise and assistance in getting full value after an auto accident. From David Cowan, visit RecExpert.com and learn more. We're here with Michael Barber, the CEO and founder of MicroLite Corporation of America, the world leaders in laser therapy. And Michael, tell us a little bit about your product. Our device is using a particular wavelength and power to reduce pain and swelling. My background is surgical lasers, but I've been involved with this particular device now for about the last 20 years, actually. And I know that it works because I've had it used on me as well. (laughs) And tell us about the relationship you have with your company in Canaway. It's what I call a strategic business relationship in that Canaway, the leader in the field of the cannabinoid systems and CBD oil, but our device used in conjunction with Canaway CBD oil gives a better pain relief outcome for the patient. And if you want to get that pain relief outcome like I did, you can reach their local representative, Sherry McCants at 515-208-6312. That's 515-208-6312. Hey everyone, this is Matt Llewellyn for the 23rd Street Brewery. Thank you so much for supporting local restaurants, especially through this pandemic. And you know what? We're almost through it. At the 23rd Street Brewery, we have brought in a few more tables. You can wear a mask if you want or not. It's your choice. Other than that, we're open 1130 every single day. So come see us at the 23rd Street Brewery in Lawrence. We're here once again with Dr. Brad Woodle from Advanced Sports and Family Chiropractic and Acupuncture. Springtime, good weather's finally here. People want to stay active, and it's your job to make sure that they can stay active, be active, and be healthy. Danny, we see a lot of not just weekend warriors, but people that every day are having that want to get back to activity. Whether you're starting with walking, jogging, or maybe that first 5K of the year, we want to help you out. We specialize in taking care of all ages. 
from kids all the way to grandmas and grandpas, but absolutely specialize in getting you back to full function and keeping you in great shape. So in short, how do we go about doing that? The first thing is to schedule a consultation with one of our doctors and therapists so we can see how you move and how you're supposed to move. Based on our assessment, we can put together a short treatment plan and a set of goals to help you both feel better, function better, and most importantly, stay better for this year and many years to come. Learn more at asfca.com slash Danny. That's asfca.com slash Danny. If you'd like to join these and other great sponsors and market your business to a growing and engaged audience, contact us at Danny at DannyClinkscale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. And we continue with Bob Walkenhorst and uh, your first band, of course, uh, you self-produced an, an album, or you're not, you're not, not Fantasia, the next one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then you become the Rainmakers. And I saw two different things in research that I did. Did you sign with Polygram or Mercury? Well, <laughs> Mercury was, a, was one of the labels under right. the Polygram umbrella you know they had uh and and in europe it was not mercury it was polygram but okay. yeah that was the parent company which was headquartered in in switzerland so tell tell the process of being signed by a big label how did that happen well i think one of the the main differences between the music business in the 80s and the music business now is that there was a roadmap back then you played locally you, you honed your craft, you learned how to write songs, you, then you started expanding your geographic circle a little bit, you'd play the surrounding college towns, then you would venture to the next metropolitan area. Can, you know, how will St. Louis or Chicago respond to a Kansas City band? And you just keep spreading your circle out, and then you start reaching out to the next professional levels. You need professional booking agencies, you need a professional management, and then those people would take the step to the record label, say we've got something here that it's proven. It's they've got a, you know, thousands of people fan base. They've got original songs. Let's make a record. And so it was pretty much this linear path: take this step, get that accomplished, go on to the next step. There's not such a defined roadmap anymore right. for young musicians, which is really hard. It's just so much more unknown. Is your your YouTube video going to be? Your, your ticket to being a professional musician, for a lot of people, it is. Right. Uh, is uh, being picked up on a soundtrack. Uh, just, you know, there's just so many different ways, but there's no one way. And back in the 80s when we were um, rising up in the music business, there was really kind of one way that it worked. Was there a particular person who came to a show, or was there somebody who had a tip on that, or did, was there a night where, okay, this is the big night, you know, there was so-and-so is coming person, from New York? There was a particular person in our life that without that person, it may not have gone the same way. In fact, I'm certain it would not have. And, and he died a couple years ago. He was a young guy named Chip Hooper. He was uh, from Chicago. And he contacted us when he was 22 years old. He was an agent in Chicago. And he had this, he was just working for this little agency. And he had this idea that if he could book, if he could become the exclusive representation for the hot local band in each metropolitan area in the Midwest, then he would leverage that. You know, if you're going to book Steve, Bob, and Rich, if you're going to book the hot band in Kansas City, then you have to also take a date from this band from Minneapolis. You know, you got to give them a shot. So he, and he was really smart, he was really energetic. And he was just this super, super talk, 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 young guy who was going to take over the world. And 
we clicked and he was, you know, he was the guy that said, okay, here's what you need to do. We've got to put you in touch with this person. And Chip went on to be the top person in his profession. He was the booking agent for Aerosmith and Fish and Huey Lewis and the News. And uh, he rose to the top of his profession and was just a great guy. And I feel like our band was also lucky in that you can talk to a lot of people who went through the record company professional management experience. And there's someone along the line that screws them over. We didn't have anybody screw us over, you know, making, trying to make records on the national scale is like going to the horse races. I mean, (laughs) anything can happen. Some people win big, some people lose big, some people land in the middle somewhere. And we landed in the middle somewhere, which was pretty lucky, but we never had anybody screw us over. In fact, we had people work so hard for the good of our band and we worked really hard and we were dependable. And so, you know, we don't really have very many great stories of debauchery and and doom and gloom on the road. We just worked hard and we had people that worked really hard with us. And so it's not really interesting, but I'm glad that's our story because I'm I'm here to still tell it. Right. And uh, just talk about, it sounds like your relationship with your bandmates was sort of a nice one. It it was. And I got to give them a lot of credit for putting up with me because I always have been a, a, a bit of a control freak just because I care about, you know, this is the best way it should be done. Uh, and I've gotten a lot better at listening to other people's opinions. But, yeah, they they trusted me or, or allowed me or put up with me to make a lot of the decisions for the band and to be the songwriter and do the interviews and, and all that, which that was, you know, they worked out okay. And I... Really, in just the past decade or the past eight years that the Rainmakers have been back together, I have come to much uh, a much greater appreciation for each person in the band and for how much better the music is if you're not the control freak. If you leave it up to other people to to in to have genuine input into the creative process and leave some of it up to chance. You know, to be comfortable with, right. we don't know this song yet, let's record it. And great things will happen. And I, I, I'm glad that I've kind of learned to not be so controlling. I think it's been better for, for me, and it's certainly been better for the people around me. <laughs> and hopefully better for the music. Uh, this, the look on your face looks like a person who feels like they matured or whatever. And was it your natural personality to be the person who would lead the band? And or were the other guys naturally deferential or is it, did you have to kind of almost fight for that position? A great rock and roll band is democratic to an extent. You know? <laughs> uh, and that's where always the, the tension comes in. It, you, you are a band of, of musicians. You're a band of brothers. If you have that personal rapport and you're going to go through a whole lot of experiences together, and you're going to go through a whole lot of boredom together, and you're going to ride miles and miles and miles in a van together. So you better get along to right. some extent. And and our band did. You know, we were not teenagers. We were, uh, you know, we were in our thirties, and and we respected each other and took care of each other. And no one was crazy. You know, no. Again, we don't have great stories because no one in our band was crazy. Uh, when we when we were playing the bars in Kansas City, it was a very democratic band. I mean, you're playing four hours a night. There's time for everybody to sing. Right. As you 
narrow your scope down to where you're going to be making original music, well, well, who's writing the songs? And then, well, who's writing the best songs? And, and that gets a little touchy. No one wants to be told that someone else is writing the best songs. But it eventually comes down to, you know, Bob's the lead singer, Bob's writing the songs, you're the lead guitar player, you're the bass player, and you're the drummer, and we all have our roles to do. Uh, I, again, I've, I've learned to express my appreciation better than I used to, and, and I love playing with those guys. When did, what was the decision to make you the Rainmakers? How did that come about? Well, we had been this three-piece band, Steve, Bob, and Rich, and I had been the drummer. And as it was now a band about songwriting, I didn't want to be the drummer anymore. It's like that just doesn't work visually. I mean, you know, this was the time of the the big rock concert, come out on stage, go insane for as long as you can, you know, whip up the crowd. And it's hard to do that from behind a drum kit when you're the lead singer. So, uh, so I wanted to move to guitar. And we knew who we wanted to be on drums. We wanted Pat Tomic to play drums, who had been in The Secrets. We were talking about The Secrets. And Pat is just uh, one of the the easiest people to work with I've ever known in my life. You know, he'll try it any way you want to try it. Uh, he'll have really good ideas. And uh, so, yeah, Pat became our drummer as we're as we are making the first record. So it wasn't like we had uh, a history as a four-piece band. We started, really started making the record as a three-piece band, and Pat's joining the band right at the same time with, as our drummer. How about the name? When we were recording our first album in Memphis at, at Ardent Studios, which was just one of the top studios in the country, a legendary place, uh, with Terry Manning, who was a wonderful person, wonderful producer, engineer. We didn't have a band name. We knew we were going to change the band name before the first album came out. So we had these long pieces of white paper taped up on the walls, and we just started writing down possibilities. And we had dozens and dozens of them. A few pop into your head? <laughs> None that I care to repeat. Okay. Well, we actually, the Missouri Mules was one of them. Uh, yeah, I've heard that. Uh, one of them was Missouri Breaks, which was the name of a Jack Nicholson movie around there. And there was, was the band Missouri already? Yeah, Missouri. That was kind of a thing then, Kansas, yeah. Missouri, Kansas, Boston, Missouri. whatever. Yeah. And we knew we, we wanted something Midwestern, uh, but I didn't want something as literal as the Missouri Mules. And good call. Yeah. I don't know. You know, if you'd been around long enough, you might've gotten used to that too. <laughs> but the Rainmakers, it seemed like, well, that kind of, that kind of thematically fits these songs where there's, I think in our, particularly on our first album, there's this edge of political commentary woven together with honoriness and, and a sense of fun and also a little bit of sense of glue of, of, uh, dread and gloom in there too which is a weird thing to weave together but that seemed to be what we had and the idea of a rainmaker who comes to town and right. do you trust this guy is he uh, is he ripping everyone off or is he actually delivering something you need we thought well this kind of works together so when we landed upon the rainmakers and had some time to live with it we thought yeah i think we i think 30 years from now we'll be okay with this band name <laughs> There, in, in writing songs, there's a couple of different ways that people go about it, and sometimes they do both, but a lot of times songwriters write songs about things in their life or things that are very personal in their life. And other songwriters, Mark Knopfler, one of my favorites from Dire Straits, comes to, uh, to mind. They write songs about things that have absolutely nothing to do with them, preacher's wives in the 1800s or whatever. 
yours is a little bit of a mix, but you seem to write songs that aren't necessary, even though they might have a personal touch, they are stories apart from you per se. No, I don't, I don't, don't think so. I think that I'm, I'm very much in the story or close to the story, but I try to write it in a, in a way that the listener sees themselves in that story because See, you fooled me. Well, but I think that's what, I think that's what good art does. It makes right. the it makes the view the listener or the viewer feel like they're in it. Um, and I can't say that I consciously did that, right? But I eventually realized that that's what I was doing as a songwriter, and that's what we were doing as a band. Is we were making songs that people were like, "I did that. I lived that. You're, right? You're singing. You're telling my story." And when you realize that if you just tell your own story, you're probably telling somebody else's story too. You find the things that are the common experiences and write about that. That's what resonates. I, I guess. I guess what I was getting at a little bit was that that you know you're not a rainmaker. I mean, but you I portray be. a rainmaker. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. Everything, anything's possible. All right. All right. So since I was basically two thirds wrong, let's move on. Uh, so you you put your first album out and there's really tremendous critical acclaim of of this record and it doesn't and and the record did pretty well mm -hmm. uh did it end up being in any way frustrating to you that your band was so well received critically and did well but didn't like you didn't become superstars per se we didn't <laughs> God, Danny, you're breaking my heart. <laughs> well, you be, you know, you know, for our area, also, I, I wrote this when I did the piece about uh, No Romance a couple of weeks ago, which included No Romance. For people in our area, it's difficult. We we do, Kansas Cityans, I think, do think of the Rainmakers in that way. I think Kansas Cityans of a certain age. Right. I mean, music is such a generational thing that uh, there are young people in this town avid music fans who have never heard of our band and that's okay you know right. that's that's the part you can't get frustrated about or be indignant about because music is generational well whatever you listen to between the time you're 15 and 30 that's right. going to be your soundtrack and i hope you can keep your mind open to new things i've had a hard time right. doing that i've made myself listen be listening to newer music just right. uh, so i'm not yeah play me one more rolling stone song no there's got to be a uh, there's got to be new music for each generation. Right. I have certainly had times in my life where I thought, God, I, I just, I wish this had been more successful, but I've had more times in my life where I'm like, you know, I think this worked out. Okay. Right. I think I, I think I got the right amount of, of rock and roll stardom and celebrity. You know, right. I got to experience that there were, there were times where, yeah, I could go any place in Kansas city and somebody would stop me, recognize me, and and it was always within polite confines. I never was mobbed or anything. Right. Uh, but then I've also just had the freedom to to you know go to the lumber yard and and buy what dressed in rags right. and buy whatever I want. I, I don't have an image to keep up. And and I've got to have a a normal and comfortable life and be part of my community and be part of my children's lives. So all in all, I'm really okay with right. my story. You know, I, I know that it, it could have gone much worse. It could have gone much better. This is the way it went. Be, be okay with that. I guess I guess part of what I was getting at is that, you know, like Newsweek called the, you know, the 
what was it? What's the exact quote? I have it here. The uh, most auspicious debut album of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rolling Stone had high praise for it. You know, there's, you know, there's things all over the place for it. And this second album, the same thing, which is actually shows that there was a pretty good degree of fame because I had been five years removed from Kansas City and I discovered that album when I lived in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but to be told by revered critics and everything that your your stuff's great and then it doesn't quite explode that that didn't bother you at at different times it has bothered me and at different times it has not bothered me at all i think that that if there was anything that our band should have done differently i I think guys that's the thing with any in anyone's life what would you have done differently to make the story have a different ending for the most part, I can't think of anything we would have done differently. We had a, a record label and, and people that advised us that were right about 85% of the time. They had a pretty good record, and they were allowing us to be who we were. It's like you, you, the songs we were writing, the way we were playing these songs, bands on the coasts can't do that. You know, <laughs> right? They are not from here. They can't write with this perspective. And we luckily had people that recognized that. You're doing something unique. You're, you're, you're writing with a voice from the Midwest. Keep doing that. We'll encourage you. We'll support you. Keep doing that. So, you know, we couldn't have done that differently. It's like, should we have written different songs? Well, no. These are the songs we right. wrote. Uh, we worked really hard. We had great experiences. I think the only thing we could have done differently was was rest. You know, <laughs> I think that we had a, a little bit of a... Um, an attitude from our management of the golden gooch, you know, let's kill the golden gooch. Let's, let's get the egg out. Uh, they should have, they should have, and I should have, and the band should have said, Hey, we've got to take some breaks in here or we're going to totally burn out. Right. Which is, is kind of what happened. We kind of hit the, the fatigue wall where we, cause we were working all the time. And if we weren't on the road, we were in a studio and if we weren't in the studio, I was somewhere holed up writing. Right. It, it just never ended. And so after, five years which doesn't seem like a very long time really but really after five years but if it's five years of of 200 dates a year and you know stuff like that that's a long time we should have we should have paced ourselves a little better that's the only thing i could think we would we should do differently and and like i said earlier it when you play the the national music game it's like going to the races there's so many things out of your control our our first single was released let my era let my people go go and it did great. It was getting radio play across the country. Top and, 20 in England. Well, when the radio stations find out that they're playing a record that doesn't exist, they stop playing it. Okay, we'll fix that glitch. Get the record printed. Well, then our second single, we're going to bring it home with this one. Well, Bruce Springsteen releases his three-album live set the very same day our single comes out. Well, right. all the radio stations in the country of their top 20 slots 15 of them are bruce springsteen well right. you, you know it's the boss of course you're gonna play bruce springsteen so you know there's just so much of it that's out of your control all you can do is be at peace with the parts that were in your control right we made good songs we worked really hard we had great people that uh, the rest of it is up to chance so talk about the end or the end of that chapter of when you decided to you know shut it down for a while for, as the rainmakers we made three albums on mercury you know the major label deal uh you were talking about the ing about being successful in england we were on top of the pops and and our records sold inversely with each album release in america we would sell slightly less and with each album release 
the same albums being released in Europe, they would each one sell slightly more. So we were going uphill in Europe when we kind of hit the uh, the wall of, of fatigue for the band, but also uh, the label ran into some financial difficulties and said, well, guys, we love you, but we, we can't afford you anymore. Right. And so we were dropped from our labels. And that happens to a lot of bands. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and that's, again, a, a point of critical timing. Do you have the the energy and the emotional strength to start this over. We're going to find a new label. We're going to right. start this process all over again. And we didn't. And I think if we had been more well-rested, we might have. But we were just, we were just, uh, yeah, we were just exhausted. And it was kind of like, eh, let's call it a day for a while. Well, let's, right. And I don't know how long for a while, for a while is going to be. So we took a couple years off. And during that time is when, I got married. I was going to ask you that. Family. Yeah. So it was at the, at the end of that, the band ended and then my family started, which that's good timing. So tell me about meeting your wife. Hmm? Tell me about meeting your wife. Well, she, she was, uh, um, she worked here in Kansas city. She worked at one of the clubs that we played at regularly and, you know, it took us 10 years to kind of get our lives in the same place at the same time. And when it worked out, it worked out really well. So we, you know, we uh, we have had a, a great marriage and and a really interesting marriage and great kids and now grandkids. And so I I feel like I won the lottery there. We so we we our children are little and I'm taking a little break from music, but we still have interest coming from Norway and from Germany right. and Canada. We have we have interest all the way all outside the U.S., but the but the band makes another record. In fact, we make two more records that we record and produce on our own, and those are released in Europe, and then they're sold as an import in the U.S., which is is just ironic that people in right. Kansas City have to order the thirty dollar import to hear their local band. But that's what happened, and so after those two records and some more, a little bit of touring in the U.S. and and several trips to um, to Europe. Then we really called it a day, and and broke up in twenty or, or in uh, nineteen ninety eight. I think was actually our final gig. So we take thirteen years off, and raise kids, and they be, they get grown up, and job people have jobs. And you'd ask if I ever had a real job. I, I worked for about ten years in video production. I learned okay. how to edit and write and uh, and do all those things that you do to to make commercials and films or uh, training films and all kinds of boring stuff (laughs) but it was fun it was a good job i enjoyed again you're just making stuff as long as i can make can make stuff i'm pretty happy right and staying you know had a regular schedule stayed home and then what do you know your kids are grown they're how much music 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 people who musicians do music i mean they don't my, my wife's an opera singer she was a professional for a long time she still sings all the time uh how much music was in your life or did did that lapse a little bit for a while i had five years where i didn't perform anywhere which right now sounds like wow how'd you go five years but yeah i had five years where i didn't play at all now when you're a writer and particularly a songwriter because songs are so short there's always little tunes creeping through your head and ooh, there's a title of a good song. So I was always making notes and hey, what do you know? I finished a song. So over those five years, I was still a musician in my head, but I just wasn't right. out playing anywhere. And I was having a regular job and, and a very orderly life and raising kids and, and having a great relationship. So 
eventually, as the kids get their own lives going, they're they're older, they're teenagers or something, and then there's time for music again. So it kind of snuck up on me, and we started playing uh, at uh, the at Malloy Brothers when it was uh, when it was Malloy Brothers up in the Westport Shopping Center, and started doing a Wednesday night thing there. And I was making music with Jeff Porter, mm-hmm. and we just we had. You know, it was going real well. And so we decide we're going to make a duo album. And half of Jeff's songs, half of my songs. And, and it, it's still to this day a very, very nice record. I'm very proud of that record. Well, we decide, what the heck, let's let's go to Norway and play these songs. And, you know, just going to book a little tour of Norway. Just Jeff and I go. And, and the first show is in Oslo. And we walk out on stage and we play one of our songs. And it's, you know, very well received. And we play a Rainmaker song. And the place just erupts. And I'm like... <laughs> Oh wow! I forgot about this. <laughs> I forgot about this. And so after that trip, I, I decided, well, could we uh, have could we have another Rainmakers trip? Uh, just a trip to Norway. Go play the Rainmaker songs in Norway. So this is 2011. There's 2010. Yeah, it's 2010, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, well, 2011 will be 25 years since we released our first record. That's a good anniversary. Let's do a 25 year. You know, anniversary. I was trying to think of this. I know now, I, you and I ran across each other at the airport, and I was trying to figure out where it was, when it was, and now I know it was 2010 because I went and covered the Ryder Cup in 2010. That's why I would have been at the airport. And, of course, you're unmistakable, and I went over and we talked a little bit, and you were okay. headed to Norway. So now I know. <laughs> now it. I know. Oh, well, I knew you and I had talked somewhere. <laughs> so, at the airport. So now now I know oh, the date. Yeah. There we go. That, that fits right in. And. So you decided to do this kind of, on, you know, you went and got the reception for the one Rainmaker song. And then what what is it like as a as sort of an entrepreneur to say, hey, we're going to do a Rainmaker's tour. We're going to go to Norway. We know there's an audience there. How does that work? Well, in the 13 years that we were broken up, the the media had changed a lot. The, inter- the Internet came into existence. That was, when the band broke up the first first and second times, there was still no Internet. So that changes everything. And the, the, the technology of music, downloads were just starting in 2011, just mm-hmm. starting to kind of become into existence. People were still buying CDs. Our, our actual plan was, let's just go brush up on the old songs. Let's go to Norway once. Let's just have a great time. And then we'll come home and call it, call it a day again. Right. Well, in those 13 years, we had all become better musicians we had become better people, you know, more well-rounded, more accommodating, and I think I had become a better band leader, uh, acknowledging people's contributions, desiring their contributions. Man, what do you hear? What do you want this to do? And we had such a good time making the first record. Well, okay, so we only pl- so we planned to have this tour. That's all we're gonna right. do. We're gonna go on tour, right? Well, being the money grubber that I am, it's like, well, we ought to sell as much crap as we can while we're there. Okay, well let's let's make a new record right okay well yeah let's knock something let's just knock this out something just they'll buy it well i hadn't written any songs okay <laughs> better get to work and write some songs so i i decide okay i'm gonna write for the rainmakers again and i gotta do it now and and i think we made one of the best records we've ever made just because we did, had no expectations we had no pressure and we had no reason it was it was either love the music do it for the love of the music or don't do it right and we got together at Pat Tomic, our drummer's house, who has a studio in his home. And he was actually set up in the living room. 
And we record it in his living room and, and wires everywhere and pizza and beer and, and let's learn the next song and record it. And it's one of my favorite Rainmakers experiences and I think some of the best music we ever made is our, you know, what you might call a comeback record right. called 25 On that was made in five days and recorded in five days. We would just learn the song, record it, learn the song, record it. And we had such a good time. We're like, oh, well don't don't stop now you may have gotten all your egos out of the way and you may have gotten your your band leader in check <laughs> and uh and everyone's having a great time we're making good music well why why stop now so yeah we did we did uh, i think four four or five trips to norway started playing around kansas city you know did a few other excursions midwest up to minneapolis uh you know over to st louis a couple times and kind of realized well this is how far we want to drive and this is how far we don't want to drive right we'll get on the airplane but driving across the country i don't think we want to do that anymore and uh so we made a second album in 2014 monster movie which was a lot of fun and I, and actually is my favorite rainmakers record of all it accomplished everything i wanted ever wanted a record to be it's really political and it was written before the whole era of Donald Trump, and yet the word Trump actually appears in one of the songs. But there's all this thing, monster movie, about the the monster that is our our political climate and, and how it just kind of uh, it can devour everything good. So there's a lot of, you know, I think, very relevant political commentary on that album. And there's also a lot of fun on that album. There's a lot of funny stuff on there. Uh, we co-wrote some of the songs uh, everybody gets a lead vocal turn except pat he doesn't doesn't do a lead vocal but uh it, it was just another good experience and, and it ends up with a, a a piece of art a piece of musical art that i am extremely happy with like there you go that's what i wanted that record to sound like and we made one more album after that where we decided we would all pick out our favorite uh obscure covers right or more or less obscure covers some of them were top top records but do the rainmakers version of it so we did an album called cover band which was all all these odd choices from the carter family to see right. ernie ford it's pretty good pretty to, damn good yeah um after that i'm gonna do that at the end i'll wait i'll wait on that when you were during the entire span of the rainmakers but especially at the uh, at the point where you're making the uh, the records with the record company there's a weird dynamic in there the fact that uh, you would get some presence or want to be interviewed or whatever by Christians because of some of the <laughs> the tenor of the, the songs, be it the fire and brimstone type aspect of the songs and, and Christian radio maybe had some interest in this type of thing. Did that, was that ironic to you? It was ironic in that I think when you're really trying to write honestly about where you're from and reflect the place that you're from and the people that you are from, religion has has always been a deep part of life in the midwest and so and religion was a big part of my life growing up just traditional church and then going through you know my own quests for some kind of truth and trying to figure out what's real and what's not real in in christianity that's crept into the songs well if you just mention jesus or moses in a song 
some Christian writer who's not paying attention is going, oh, well, here's here's a Christian band. <laughs> oh, no, we're not a Christian. But I would end up, yeah, with lots of interviews. I don't know we ever did Christian radio. I think they had figured out by the time they listened to the song, <laughs> nope, this is not a Christian band. Right. But uh, the interviewers would be would want to talk to me about my journey of faith or, or however they saw it or what was I right. trying to say. And finally, one interviewer says, well, if I'm going to, he, he, he told me that he thought, if I was going to write about my Christian faith, that I should just do it much clearer and, and just really testify. And I'm like, why don't you start your own band and you write the songs the way you want to? How, how dare you tell me how you think I should do? So he, his his feeling was that you were really like a a, a devout Christian, well, he and you wanted me to be, and, and he, right, and you were sort of using subterfuge to to not make it that type I of song. I don't know what he thought. He thought I should do it. Di- however, I was doing it. I should do it differently. It's like, yeah, thanks, Mister Music Critic, uh, and Stephen King. Uh-huh. Is a, like the writer is an unabashed fan. Yeah. Uh, what uh, I assume you've met the man now, yeah. uh, and he's used to, he's quoted some of your lyrics in a couple of his books and and things like that, and continues to tweet and uh, about the Rainmakers. Uh, that's that's pretty cool. We we had released our first album and we had toured relentlessly, and it was late 1986. So we're finally getting home. We're going to be off the road for a while. Our agent calls and he says, I've got this offer to go to Bangor, Maine and play a single show. It's for this author, Stephen King. And I'm like, yeah, I know who Stephen King is. And I said, man, we just got off the road. And he goes, well, you know, he'll fly you out there. All you got to do is get to the gig and play the gig and come back home. And he'll pay you really well. I'm like, oh, okay. So we, 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 we fly and there's a blizzard. And so we can't even land in Bangor. We have to land in Portland. We get two rental cars, we throw all of our stuff in the cars, uh, and we drive like mad through a bl- through a main blizzard in right. January to get to Bangor. And we get to the Civic Center in the afternoon, we walk in, there's food, there's, you know, there's the stage, there's the PA, and there's not a soul in that building. There's no one in that building. The doors open, we all look, we're like, ooh, it's a haunted Civic Center, Stephen <laughs> King. And finally, he shows up, and this was, you know, still during kind of Stephen's wild years. Uh, but he was real nice, and he had brought us there because he had bought the local radio station, and he had them play all his, all the music that he wanted to hear. <laughs> and he wanted to see if he jammed on a new band, and he picked ours, if the people would turn out uh, for a concert. Good plan, except for the blizzard. So we do our show. I think we had about 200 people in the 2,000-seat auditorium. <laughs> And, uh, and I look up in the very top rafters, and there in the very top rafters, huddling over his, his grocery bag full of tall boys, is Stephen King sitting at, the, sitting at the top of the auditorium. And he comes back and uh, backstage after the show, and, and he says, I'm, I'm working on a new book, and I'm going to put some of your lyrics in it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. I'll believe that when I see it. And sure enough, the next book comes out, and each half of the book uh, starts out with a Rainmaker song, and, you know, not in the story, but as like the title, right. kind of the title page of each right. half. And then he, uh, he, so a couple other lyrical references popped up in the next book, and yeah, it was just really, it was just nice f- to know that somebody of that uh, renown was listening to your music and that it meant something to them, right. to where they wanted to to reference you in their song. And then years later, after we do Monster Movie, yeah, he tweets. Tweets, hey, Rainmakers are still kicking ass, and right, yes. Bob Walking Horse rules. And my daughter saw that, and she she puts it on Facebook, and she goes, "My dad's cooler than your dad." <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's probably a good time to talk about your, your daughters. And you have grandkids now, but now you're making music with uh, one of your daughters. Yeah, uh, our younger daughter, Una, is uh, she's, she's always been the quiet, sensitive, adventurous spirit. And when she finished high school and did, did a couple years of college here in town at Penn Valley, she decided she was going to move to New York. And so she lives in New York for a year. And then she comes back and, and works a little in Kansas City and then decides she's going to go out and travel around the country with her guitar and just see America. So she does that for I like that plan. <laughs> yeah. And we were talking about the you have to enjoy your own company. She was doing that trip all alone and would stay at uh, Airbnbs or then she discovers couchsurfing.com whereas people just let you stay for free. She stayed on a porch with a goat. She stayed out in a teepee uh, and wrote songs all that time. Comes back to Kansas City and and decides that New Orleans is where she's going to land. So she was in New Orleans for uh, almost three years. And then a little more than a year ago, she decided that chapter was coming to an end, and she didn't know where she wanted to live next. But she didn't really think she wanted to live in Kansas City. She, uh, You know, it's that thing of, well, you don't go back home, go somewhere else. And I said, well, we've got this, you know, this little space in time where I'm still healthy and making music, and, and you're really... You're hitting your stride as a songwriter. Let, let's make some music together, and then you can move on to whatever comes next for you. So that was a, a little more than a year ago. And we, so was she receptive immediately to that? Yeah, she actually was. I think that she saw that as, that makes sense. And we started, while she was still in New Orleans, kind of sending some song ideas back and forth and realizing, oh, yeah, this, this will be good. Uh, both her unique voice as a writer and as a singer, and how it made me look at music from a different angle. Instead of Bob's writing a song, band learn the song. Let's we're not really co writing. Una and I weren't really co writing, but we were shaping each other's songs and and shaping the choice of what, what songs we were going to use. What would what's going to be good to harmonize on? And ended up with with an album that uh, I'm so happy with. And I know that as I become an ancient old man, I'm going to be <laughs> Now, you know that record's always going to be in a special little place in my heart because I'm I made it with our daughter. We've performed several times together. Uh, took a little tour to Norway together, and Michelle went along. Mm-hmm. Had a great time. We've been playing with uh, some other musicians, augmenting our sound. We've got a cellist, Sasha Groshong, who's a just incredible rock and roll cello player. <laughs> <laughs> Any kind of cello you want, she can do it. And so, getting to do these uh, some musical experimenting that I've never got to do you know play with a cellist and and it, it it has been great to share that with our child I, I, i've had so many musicians go oh my god i can't imagine what that's like and i say yeah it's pretty it's pretty special because here's this this baby that you held and now right. you're it, it took me a while to get into the mindset of this is my musical partner. This is not me telling the girl right. how to sing. I had to get past that dad part of, well, well I've right. done this for a long time. I know how we should do it. No, I did. finally when I got to the other side of that, it was like, oh, hear it, hear it from her side. Uh, it, it made me learn a lot, and it made me adapt my technique and made me be a better guitar player and a better singer to make it work with, with her voice. So it's been, it's been great. It's been really a good thing to do couple more things before we wrap up. I could talk to you all day, but uh, the, the, dogs, the, dogs, day. <laughs> the dogs need feeding. Uh, 
First of all, uh, your art. Uh, you, you're a painter, and uh, how did you, you mentioned that right from the outset? That you did. Have you done that throughout your life, or as you had more time, uh, and maybe took some time away from music? How did that all develop? Yeah, there's been chapters where I there was not enough hours in the day to paint, uh, but I went to college for visual art and have actually have a degree that says Bob can paint. <laughs> Go ahead and get a job with a thing that says Bob can paint. Uh, but when the music really kicked in in the 80s, there was just not enough time to paint. Right. I mean, I would occasionally do some sketches or stuff, but there, you know, there just wasn't enough time. And then after I had a family and had a, a regular job and that job came to an end, my video work kind of came to an abrupt end. It's like, well, what am I going to do for a living now? It's like, well, you know how to paint and you know how to make songs. Maybe you should just do that. So I, I disciplined myself and got down to actual putting out some paintings and figuring out ways to market it to the to the audience that I have, you know. Proudly, right. with the Rainmakers have a beer audience, not a champagne <laughs> audience. So you got to you got to make beer paintings. Uh, <laughs> try to make good beer paintings. There you go. Uh, no, I, I love my audience. They have made my life very, very comfortable. So yeah, I you know I I paint and 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 during the winter. I try to, uh, that's the painting time. Although this past winter, I got a little sidetracked on some other projects. So right. I've got some shows coming up this year uh, down at the uh, the farmhouse restaurant in June and then at uh, the Unitarian Church in November and Westwood City Hall in, in December. And those are all free spaces. I haven't quite ventured into the, the, true, the true galleries in Kansas City. Right. Uh, it seems like Plaza Art Fair in your future. Well, that's an awful lot of work. And it's an awful lot of gamble, and right. I, I, I had I've attended it so many times. I've often dreamed that that would be so much fun. When I actually started looking into it, it's like yeah, it'd right. be an awful lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, your hair. <laughs> as a as a person who's always been uh, pretty fastidious about my hair, and I had very long hair for a long time. And now I don't have as much hair as I would like. I'm envious. I'll say that uh, your shock of white hair now is is uh, unmistakable. Uh, the glorious hair on the Tornado album is spectacular. Uh, first of all, has that always kind of been a thing for you, or is it just one? Of, are you one of these uh, creeps who just uh, doesn't care about his hair, but it looks great anyway? I guess I'm a creep. <laughs> I very pay very little attention to it. Uh, never have, I, you know. There, yeah. It's just never been. It just is there, and it, you know, I'll I'll whack it off now and then, and and uh, cut it back a little bit. But I don't pay too much attention to it. <laughs> but it is a signature. You yeah, know that kind of is. I mean, I know if I didn't have it, I would probably, I would probably notice that. But yeah, it's just always kind of been there. So I don't really think about it too much. <laughs> you seem very. <laughs> Very passive about talking about it, but one more question: Did you, since you say you didn't care about it, it, it seems like your change to having a, a shock of white hair just happened organically, and you didn't go through a phase where you said, "Well, I'd really rather have brown hair." Or what? You know, I I did <laughs> toward, towards the end of the Rainmakers' right. uh, first chapters, my hair was starting to turn gray, and I and I experimented with coloring it. <laughs> And pretty soon the gray said, "You're not going to keep up with me," and uh, and then that kind of coincided with with starting a family and being out of the public eye, right? And being comfortable with like, yeah, I'm getting to be older, and and I'm okay with that. 
So yeah, I would probably I can I can be vain enough to say I'm not a vain person, uh, but if I didn't have my my shock of white hair, you know, I'd probably be more self conscious about it. But I, I again, it's just luck. It's like I really don't even have to think about my hair because it's just always there, and so I can be kind of vain enough to say I don't really care about it. There you which go. Is an, it's own kind of vanity. Well, it's it looks fantastic. Let me just say. <laughs> Folks, I wish you could see it. That's a goofy, good way to end a fascinating (laughs) conversation, uh, Bob. And I really enjoyed the journey. And I went and, you know, it had been too long. I went and saw you play the other night. And the fans just eat it up with a spoon. And and you seem to still to. Well, and and I've tried to stay alive in it, you know, where instead of just getting up and, and hacking out a song the same way, experimenting with the songs and playing it solo and playing it with my daughter and, and then the Rainmakers will still do our show. I think it's June 8th at Knuckleheads and then we kind of really get to really get to put the power behind it. And it's I, f- I feel lucky that I have the options to do my music in different ways, in different venues and different levels of volume and, and all the different, and, and a cello or whatever, you know, that I've got freedom to try all these things. I, I feel real lucky with that. So thanks, Kansas City, for giving me a musical home. And I feel real lucky to talk to you. You too, Danny. Thanks. This podcast was made possible by our great sponsors like Easton Roofing presenting sponsor of Kansas City Profiles at the Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Easton Roofing, where integrity matters. We hope you enjoyed the latest Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Come back soon for something fresh and new. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.